This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. I feel like a broken record. And I say that because here we go. Another edition of this program, America Changed Forever. Talking about the election system, talking about Trump supporters. Uh, you know, it's it's so hard to keep track of all of these different investigations and, frankly, all of these different potential investigations. Investigations that haven't yet started that may likely be launched at some point the more we learn. The Washington Post had an exclusive. The headline... Files copied from voting systems were shared with election deniers. And so some of these election deniers, according to the Washington Post, got access to sensitive voting system information. All you have to do is hear that headline, and that should raise alarms. Joining me now, Aaron Davis, reporter with the Washington Post. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. What brought this story to your attention? Did you get a tip about it? Uh, how, how did you guys, and you're part of a team that reported on this, how did you How did you track down this story? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the, the name of this firm has been one, this being the, the forensics firm in Georgia that obtained this information and, you know, that we're now getting a glimpse of, has been a name that we've heard for many, many months. And in fact, we first heard it uh, when a judge in Michigan, uh, you know, began to allow the release of some of the entourage of, of pro-Trump folks who made it into a Michigan County elections office uh, back in late December or December in, in 2020. And, you know, we'd called this firm many times, asked them what had, uh, what did they find and, and never received a response for, for a long time. Uh, so that was part of it. When we, when we knew there was a case involving this firm, we were immediately interested. And then secondly, uh, we've been tracking this particular case and how this bubbled up through the courts because there's this good government group, uh, the Coalition for Good Government, that has been pressing Georgia on whether its election systems are safe. And uh, I'll bring in one third element here, which is my colleague uh, Emma Brown and some others worked together on a story uh, months ago where an election, a local election official in, in Georgia actually told uh, them that, they, that, that uh, she had uh, personally let pro-Trump uh, folks into the office to try to assess if, if the election was handled correctly or not. And it was basically admission straight to the to the Washington Post. And one of the first indications that, that there was potentially a breach 
uh, involving um, uh, this county election information in Georgia. So those things are all coming together. We've been tracking this case. We already knew that there was potentially something in Georgia. We knew this firm from Michigan. And so all these things combined and, and we're had been tracking very interested in this case. And so the the allegation is that these Trump supporters were given access to this these sensitive election system files. Any idea what they were trying to do with those files? We have, yeah, some indication here, not just from this these particular places, but more broadly, of course, in those days and those frenzied weeks after the 2020 election, you recall there were just, it seemed like anybody uh, who was connected to Trump in one way or another was trying to show that or prove that the election was uh, manipulated in some way. You remember all these conspiracy theories that that uh, the, the votes had been somehow controlled remotely or manipulated from Venezuela or China or uh, you know, that, that they'd been connected, that voting machines had been connected to the internet, and so you couldn't trust anything that had happened. And so, in that vein, there was this effort undertaken by, you know, Sidney Powell, who emerged as this, you know, lead organizer of some of the legal efforts, and others, some connected to the Trump campaign, some not, um, but many far-right conservatives in this in this movement. And they were really trying to get into these election systems, access them, and and show what they believed to be the case was that there had been manipulation of these county election systems. And, you know, to this day now, we are some 60-odd court cases beyond the 2020 election. There has not been this finding of, you know, some grand problem that existed in 2020, but there remains this sentiment that these uh, machines are not safe. And that was how it started. And obviously, there's many things we can talk about where it could continue to go from here. Uh, well, let's let's talk about one of the names that you brought up, uh, Sydney Powell. Why does her name set off alarms? Well, if you recall some of those press conferences in late 2020, her and Rudy Giuliani, and and making uh, pretty broad and uh, unproven and you know claims that the election had been. Uh, mismanaged, that there had been fraud in Detroit and Michigan and Georgia and elsewhere, and repeatedly said she was going to prove this in various court cases. And uh, as the record reflects, has not. Many of those cases were dismissed. Some were thrown out. Some were never really officially filed, even though uh, she claimed they were being filed. And, you know, the the record is that there's been a lot of talk um, from Sidney Powell, but there has not been a lot of cases that have proven her point. And, you know, uh, she was involved, we now know, according to some of the January 6th uh, committee reporting in Congress, that uh, she was involved in some small and important meetings in the Oval Office trying to press the case that the president should even go as far as ordering the National Guard or others to seize control of voting machines to try to prove that something had gone wrong and maybe even rerun the election uh, with the military being involved. So uh, there was, uh, you know, unprecedented efforts by Sidney Powell and and folks close to her uh, to try to prove their case that, uh, that Trump should have remained in office. 
And, um, you know, she, according to one of the documents we have here, she signed a uh, forensics engagement agreement. And this was paying this Georgia firm uh, some 20000 plus a day to go in and conduct this work to copy these uh, very complex uh, voting machine systems, sometimes just copying hard drives of laptops that they could get their hands on, copying flash drives, really any data that they could get. Whenever they found a, a willing uh, you know, partner in a, in a local elections office, they worked very quickly to get this forensics firm uh, to that office and, and copy whatever they could. Why was it? Why was it so easy for them to to have access to that kind of information? Is it, it sounds like that would be illegal? Well, uh, I think there's going to be many questions going forward on that very front. Not every one of these situations is is the same. Uh, in Michigan, there's kind of a, a, a legal framework for why they were uh, accessing some of this information. In Georgia, there is really is not. Um, but uh, I can go through these in, in more detail. But, you know, in, in Michigan and in, in, uh, Arizona, the different times a court or a judge has has said back in those, again, weeks after, after the November 2020 election, um, you know, maybe impounded the ballots or said you can go uh, try to conduct another audit of these machines. And as soon as they got some approval, they would bring in this firm, uh, Sullivan Strickler from Georgia, to uh, begin that effort. Um, sometimes they were uh, copying stuff that was clearly part of the court order. Other times they were copying things uh, that seemed beyond what the court order allowed. In this case of Georgia, this was just a local elections official who just said, uh, you know, come on in and take a look and let me know if you can, what you can find. And questioned, one of the questions that this whole, uh, you know, series of revelations in court raises, do we know the full extent? Do we know the full universe of, of places where uh, people who, um, you know, some of the political candidates or their uh, people acting on their behalf access this machine, these machines and data. We don't know. One concern here is that the kind of information they have could lead to harassing potential voters. Uh, how do you respond to that? And is is that kind of concern warranted? Well, there's potentially a couple different buckets of uh, concerns you could experts that we've talked to have at this point in time. And to be fair, we don't have a full picture of all of the data that has been obtained because the plaintiffs in this court case um, in Georgia are treating this as if it's stolen material, material that was, they believe, taken without, without authority from the uh, Coffee County Elections Office in Georgia. And so they haven't opened it. They haven't given it to their experts to really do a full diagnostic of. We um, have not been given actual copies of the hard drives of the election material. But from the experts who have looked at um, a couple clues that we do have, and one of those is an index of all of the computer files that were copied uh, and taken by this company related to the Trump campaign. Um, there are 
multiple reasons to be concerned. There are flash drives that could contain actual voter uh, you know, copies of the ballots or the, you know, the electronic signatures of the, of the ballots that went through the system. There are files that uh, contain object code and, and uh, the very guts of the voting machine systems that were used in the November 2020 election and to this day are used statewide in Georgia. Georgia is one of the only states that uses uh, almost the same system in all of its uh, counties. And so could, uh, you know, one question going forward here, going forward is could uh, some of this uh, code be, uh, you know, reverse engineered to find the source code to understand how these machines these machines work and could it be used in any way going forward to manipulate or to sabotage a future election locally or more broadly? The state, you know, to, to be fair, the state uh, secretaries of state and attorneys general say, you know, we have confidence right now in the system. We believe we, believe we will have a uh, clean, cleanly run and, and, you know, election with integrity in Georgia. Uh, and the voting machines companies such as Dominion Voting, which uh, makes the, the system used in Georgia, says that there are these safety checks, there are uh, accuracy testing before an election and recounts afterwards. Uh, but we really are kind of in uncharted, uncharted territory when you have a group of people who are, uh, you know, bent on trying to prove that the election and the election machine shouldn't be used and are, can be manipulated and that they have a lot of the, you know, beginnings of, of what could be the source code of these machines and how they operate and have years to, uh, to, to look at this ahead of the next presidential election, let alone right now we're heading into this midterm election. Dominion voting has really pushed back against people like <laughs> the My Pillow guy and Rudy Giuliani, who have spread all these falsehoods about their voting machines. Um, but once again, it, it seems like they are at the center of yet another controversy because of Trump allies trying to prove that there were irregularities in their machines. Right. I think, uh, you know, what uh, what folks probably have to do at this point in time is to kind of hold two different ideas in your head that are in somewhat some kind of conflict. And and that is that on the one hand, while the meaning is, is right, that there have been dozens of lawsuits and dozens of court cases and no one has proven any problem with the accuracy of their systems in 2020, uh, Going forward, it's only a, a more complex and uh, you know perilous uh, security situation now with uh, this code, and you know we're still learning. We have yet to learn the full extent of how this could be used, but that their code that runs their machines um, is in some way out there, uh, and boy, is it out there <laughs> with the list of folks that uh, the, the Sullivan Strickler has shown that they have disseminated this information to and working on behalf of uh, you know, the Trump side. What is Sullivan Strickler saying in response to Washington Post reporting? Yeah. Uh, Sullivan Strickler uh, maintains that they, they say they're cooperating with this investigation and that being a, a criminal investigation that is uh, when launched last week, just as uh, these documents were turned over and we reported what they said, 
because um, uh, really any copying of computer, manipulating of computer state systems in Georgia is a felony. And they say that they will show that, um, that uh, they believe they had access and, and, and had been directed uh, to contact county officials to obtain access into the contracts that they had with Sidney Powell and others. Uh, likewise, the firm says that it was directed by those attorneys working on behalf of uh, efforts to uh, overturn the election for Trump, that they uh, were told to distribute this data and had no reason to believe that um, as officers of the court, as you will, Sidney Powell and others were asking them to do anything improper or illegal. Don't they have a point if one of the election workers sort of let them have access to this? And what happened to that person, by the way? Well, that, that is a good question. The, um, the county elections official there in Georgia, um, Misty Hampton, she was uh, fired later, but under a kind of not directly because of this, but for saying the county official said she had falsified uh, timesheets, and, and that's why she was uh, fired. Um, the, 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 if this progresses, uh, you know, as we expect with a fuller criminal investigation, you're right that uh, they can say that they um, were allowed into this office, uh, sanctioned by that county elect by that local elections official. Um, but they, uh, there is a, a part of their contract with Powell and with another uh, Trump attorney, Jesse Benall, and that is a little bit laughable on the face in that, you know, clearly they're going in and using county election systems uh, and, and looking at those. Uh, but the Powell or Banal, depending on the, the state and the contract, they uh, there's a warranty in this contract that says the, the customer, that being the folks working for the Trump side, um, had full license and, and authority to use all of the computer systems that they we're going to be conducting a forensic, forensic analysis on. And <laughs> later on, it spells out those are county systems, so they couldn't really have the, the authority to, to grant uh, a full uh, a license and use of those. Let's mm, good reporting. Aaron Davis with The Washington Post. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Mary McCord is the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, as well as a former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. Mary, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So so this is another one of those stories that, that concerns me about the future uh, really the near future of elections in this country, sensitive election system files obtained by attorneys working to overturn President Donald Trump's 2020 defeat were shared with election deniers, conspiracy theorists, and right-wing commentators. Does this story from the Washington Post raise alarms for you? It does raise alarms and it raises them across a variety of, you know, areas, uh, you know, as a lawyer, my initial, you know, one initial thought is just, you know, my goodness, any, any circumstances in which access was provided for purposes of litigation would have been very limited. And we see in that story that there were protective orders and things like that. And so we have attorneys that I, I think appear to have violated uh, probably the, the, 
um, parameters that a court put on their access to this information. And the second thing, which sort of flows from the first thing, is there's a reason the court put those parameters on, because this is the type of sensitive information about election systems, uh, actual, it appears to be forensic, you know, digital, um, uh, exa- you know, um, files actually taken from those systems. And to get that into the hands of of anybody, but certainly someone, certainly people who have denied the election, who've been working to overturn the election and still are working to overturn the election nearly two years after it, uh, just really raises a lot of um, concerns about potential uh, intrusions, potential hacking incidents, potential manipulation of these systems. And so, and makes it much more difficult, I think, for CISA and all of the diverse. Um, election systems throughout the country to, uh, you know, figure out a remedy for that, because this, this never should have been shared as broadly downloaded to servers where people could access it. And there's one further thing that I will also mention. I, I don't, I don't have a really good understanding of exactly what they have access to, but to the extent that it all includes not only, you know, functionality of those systems and how they work and recordings of data, but to the extent it also includes, you know, voter identifications and how those voters voted, um, that is also causes me significant concern about the potential for intimidation, harassment, coercion, doxing, trolling, all of those kinds of things that also are, are very damaging to uh, our democracy. I'm still trying to figure out why or how they were given access to this kind of information. Yes. And I don't, I have not been able to, I haven't had the time to go sort of pull the dockets in the litigations in, in Georgia or in, or in Michigan, but from the Washington Post story, it appears that, you know, in the, in ongoing litigation, parties, uh, a party to each of these litigations sought from the court an order to access certain information for purposes of really discovery in that litigation. And um, so that is, I'm sure, something that the, you know, was, uh, went through an adversarial process. And it appears that the courts did permit, at least in Michigan, I think, um, uh, and and elsewhere, some type of access, but did so under a protective order. And I th- it appears from the story, again, I'm relying almost entirely on this Washington Post story, it appears that what uh, was then downloaded and made available for others to, to uh, access appears to be in violation of that court's order. Give us a little insight, if you could, about how the Department of Justice would work. Say a story like this, uh, you know, becomes, uh, goes, is public. Someone at the Department of Justice brings it to your attention. You as someone there who was a top official. What would happen then if you read a story like this while at the Department of Justice leading, say, the criminal division? What? You know, how does it get to the point where you say, "Okay, I think we need to take a look at this? Well, I, I, you know, I think assuming some independent corroboration of what is in the story, I mean, it would be looking for 
um, you know, investigators to try to corroborate some of what is in the story. And assuming that took place, I think it would be something um, I would certainly be interested in pursuing with some investigative resources uh, to determine you know, what was, who was involved in this, what knowledge they had, what was the intent, how is it being used? Um, You know, are there, are there, you know, what possible, what potential criminal laws were broken? Now, obviously we've got two levels of things going on. If we're talking about a criminal investigation, I think that there's, you know, at a first order, you would have, um, those within the States at the state level, potentially looking into violations of state law, which, uh, pretty seems pretty clearly probably happened. Um, and at the federal level, we'd have a whole different level of, of types of um, types of uh, federal statutes that might be implicated. In both places, it would include you know unlawful access to computer systems and things like that. So um, you know, it's definitely something with, with corroboration. I would certainly be interested in, and I'd be interested also you know back in. Wearing my old hat at the National Security Division, in knowing, you know, really who did get access. Less about doing a criminal investigation, and more about, um, I mean, that too. But and more about who has access and who would those pot- people potentially provide be providing access to, including foreign Arab- adversaries. In your opinion, does something like this warrant some sort of law enforcement investigation? Um, Again, I I would just basically repeat the response I just gave. I think assuming some corroboration, you know, of what's in this story, I do think it involves, it it warrants a law enforcement investigation, both for potential violations of law and again, just for the national security threat, right? If some of this information were to get into the hands of adversaries, not only here in the U.S., and there are plenty of those, unfortunately, right now, but also foreign adversaries. I mean, we, we certainly know that Russia in the past under President Putin has, you know, uh, meddled and attempted to meddle in our elections, and and there are other foreign adversaries who might do the same. So I'd want to be um, just from a pure national security protection of our critical infrastructure perspective, wanting want to be taking undertaking investigation for those purposes as, as well, even if even if there were no you know criminal charges to to flow from it. Based on what we know, almost. Almost exactly two years after the 2020 election, are you as surprised as I am by how widespread this effort to uh, delegitimize the election results is, was, what we're finding out now? Are you surprised or you're not surprised? Well, I guess, I, I mean, I don't know, does it make sense to say both? Um I'm I I was surprised that after, you know, the wholesale rejection, almost entirely wholesale rejection of all the various lawsuits that the Trump organization and Trump supporters brought challenging the election were thrown out of court by judges across the political spectrum uh, after the, you know, riot and insurrection and attack on the Capitol on January 6th and, and, you know, the condemnation of that, at least initially, um, you know, I was surprised that the, that the, I was less surprised that sort of your rank and file uh, um, people who had bought into that 
election denial and had drank the Kool-Aid, I was less surprised that they might continue to sort of believe the election was stolen. I was more surprised at how many elected officials, prominent, um, you know, uh, prominent individuals in national politics and local politics decided to adopt it and double down on it. And, and how many people decided to actually run on a platform of election denial because those people have a veneer of credibility because of their positions of power and authority. And that I think just drags on, drags along so many other members of the public. Um, and it can be ruinous to them. I mean, it, you know, we, we saw testimony from Stephen Ayer, one of the people participating in the attack on the Capitol January 6th about how he got, you know, lured into this election denial and, and felt like Trump had called him to the Capitol and that's why he went and that's what he did, what he did. And he, you know, he's now, you know, been convicted of a crime. He's lost his job. He's lost his reputation. And he now has done the work that he should have done before to realize that those were lies. Election denial was lies. And so the fact that people, again, in positions of power are using election denial for their own political purposes and you know, dragging members of the public into this milieu is really, really shameful and really dangerous uh, for democracy. Mary McGord, thanks for your time. You bet. Thank you. This past week, California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, vetoed a bill that would have allowed sites for supervised drug use. It is a program that the authors of the legislation hoped would prevent accidental overdoses. The legislation would have called for these injection sites in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Oakland through the end of 2027. And so the bill was vetoed. I think it's an interesting discussion to have. And so we have the author of the legislation with us now. Senator Scott Wiener represents... San Francisco, Senator Weiner, thanks for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. So the governor has vetoed this bill that you authored. Does this mean this legislation is is dead or are you going to keep pushing for it? We've been pushing for a good seven years to for California to simply give permission to our local communities uh, to uh, meaningfully address the epidemic of people dying of drug overdoses and safe consumption sites over 30 years in Europe, Canada, Australia have a proven track record of reducing overdose deaths and getting people into treatment. Uh, It's tragic that Governor Newsom uh, vetoed this law or this bill uh, and um, you know, at this point, I don't see a path to getting it passed unless the governor changes his mind. Uh, so I'm not planning to reintroduce it. Um, uh, we'll see what the governor wants to do. And at this point, San Francisco and other cities have the option of just moving forward on, on their own because people are dying. Well, why, you know, there there are people across the country who might look at this legislation and think, what is going on in California? You know, why do you think that this would have been the right approach to, to helping people 
who who have drug addiction problems. Well, let's just be really clear in terms of what is going on in California. Um, California is not the trendsetter on safe consumption sites. For 30 years, cities around the world have been running and operating safe consumption sites. In Europe, in Canada, in Australia, New York City opened up several safe consumption sites almost a year ago. They have been so successful in reducing public drug use and giving people the option to use inside instead of on the sidewalk in front of your kids. They've been so successful um, that Mayor Adams of New York City, who is a law and order mayor, is advocating to keep them open 24 hours a day. Uh, so San Francisco and California are not the trendsetters here. We're following. We're trying to follow. Uh, and we're doing it because we have a tidal wave of overdose deaths. Two people a day in San Francisco alone are dying of drug overdoses. And that is happening in other parts of the country, too. It, fentanyl has made it worse, but it was already happening with heroin and with meth. Uh, and we have a proven model a proven model of avoiding overdose deaths and getting into treatment, getting people into treatment by saying, instead of shooting up on the sidewalk in front of businesses and homes and in public view, where if you overdose, you may die, um, you can come inside to a clean, healthy, safe setting. Uh, if you overdose, we'll reverse the overdose. We will offer you treatment resources. Um, we'll make sure that you aren't using a dirty needle so you don't get HIV or hepatitis. Uh, and uh, it's a proven model. It works. Yeah, but w why? I, I think the governor said that, you know, the the disadvantages of this bill far outweigh the possible benefits. You're probably hearing that a lot. So how do you respond to that kind of criticism? I mean, with all respect to my friend, the governor, who, you know, is an ally. I've known him for over 20 years. I agree with him on most things. The governor's veto message was just way off base. Uh, it was very not specific about what the supposed downsides are. Um, and if you want to look at the upsides and the and whatever downsides you think there might be, all you have to do is go to New York City, where they are saving lives, and where the law and order mayor of New York City is advocating to keep these sites open 24 hours a day. All you have to go is, do is go to Australia or look to Canada or to Europe, where they've been using these for 30 years. And the, the reason why they keep using them is because they are successful. They reduce public drug use. They reduce overdose deaths. They reduce infections. They increase access to treatment. They reduce syringe litter because people aren't using on the sidewalk. Those are all upsides. And so the, the unspecified downsides the governor was referring to, um, I, I, I think are non-existent. And uh, I'm really, I was just disappointed in that veto message. People look at what is happening in San Francisco. According to the Washington Post, at least 346 people have died this year from accidental drug overdoses. Uh, actually, that's according to the city's chief medical examiner. Do you, there are going to be people in conservative states who say, well, that is a result of all these liberal policies in a place like San Francisco. Well, what, do you, what do you say to them? I know you're pointing to New York City and how the program is working there. 
But what do you say to those who are more conservative and blame liberal policies for the number of overdose deaths in the city of San Francisco? What I would say to conservatives or people in red states or in in suburbs or wherever is to look in their own backyards. San Francisco isn't the only place where people are dying of drug overdoses. People are dying of drug overdoses in red states and blue states and cities and suburbs in in rural uh, areas. Uh, drug addiction, uh, whether it's fentanyl, heroin, meth, uh, drug addiction and drug overdoses are happening everywhere. This is a national emergency. It's a public health emergency throughout our country. So yes, people focus a lot on San Francisco, and I'm proud to represent uh, this great city. Uh, but what's happening in San Francisco is not unique. The legislation that you authored, it was vetoed. What else can the leadership in San Francisco do to reverse this deadly trend? There has to be something else you can do. What about uh, treatment centers, throwing more money at treatment centers? What else is there? Of course, we need to. We have treatment and we need more treatment. There's no doubt about it. Um, but what safe consumption sites do is allow people to come off the streets, not die, and get connected to treatment because treatment is not relevant to someone who is dead. Uh, and so job one is making sure people don't die because if you're dead, you're not going to be able to go into treatment. Uh, the governor's has made life a lot harder for San Francisco, L.A., Oakland, and other cities who might have joined in in the future. Um, San Francisco is already talking about moving ahead without state permission to open up one of these sites in order to save lives. I fully support that. Um, but the governor's has made it harder. How, all right, if if you could run through how these sites would work, if if I wanted to inject myself, what do you just walk through the door, they give you a needle, lead you to a bed, and and that's how it happens? How does this work? Yeah, let's just be super, super crystal clear. Um, no one walks down the street and says, wow, I've never used drugs before. There's now a safe consumption site here. I'm going to start using drugs. That's not the world of reality. Every single person who uses a safe consumption site is already a drug user. They're already using, uh, tragically, um, uh, most likely on our streets, which is very unhealthy, filthy, um, unsafe for everyone, both the person who's using as well as the surrounding uh, community. So we're simply saying, his choice is, do you want them using on the sidewalk where, where your family can see them, where your customers, your neighbors can see them, or do you want them using inside where it's going to be safer and healthier? So someone will walk in, um, they, they'll be bringing their own drugs. These centers do not provide drugs. Uh, they will be offered the ability to test their drugs to determine if they're contaminated with fentanyl. Uh, we know that a lot of times people think they're using heroin or meth, but it's contaminated with fentanyl, and so they get sick and, and overdose. They'll have the ability to, to test. If they have dirty needles, they'll be able to exchange them for clean needles so they don't get HIV hepatitis. Uh, then they will have a clean space where they can use their drugs. If they overdose, instead of just dying on the street, uh, someone will immediately administer 
um, an overdose reversal mechanism like Narcan um, so that they don't die. Um, if the person uh, is interested in treatment, they'll be offered treatment and connected to treatment. If they need other services, they will be uh, offered and connected with other services. Maybe they have an infection and they need health care. Uh, maybe they're wondering where they can go to a shelter or how they can look for housing. Uh, they can get those uh, resources. So those are, that's, you know, the basic model. But are, are you concerned that advocating for this kind of safe consumption site could potentially lead people to drug abuse rather than help them? No, that is that is a completely uh, uh, bogus notion. Again, no one, people are using drugs right now. We have, over the last 50 years with the war on drugs, the approach we've taken to drugs is lecturing people to stop using drugs, arresting people, spending trillions of dollars incarcerating people uh, for drug use. We've done that for 50 years. And my, uh, my question is, how's that going? Has it reduced the number of people who use drugs? No. Has it reduced addiction? No. Has it reduced overdoses? No. It's all, there's more drug use and addiction now than there was 50 years ago. So berating and lecturing and incarcerating people for drug use is a failure. It's a waste of taxpayer money and it doesn't work. And so people are using right now, lots of people without these safe consumption sites. And so the notion that someone would use more drugs or start using drugs because of a safe consumption site, there's just, that's, that's, that's fantasy. That's just not how the real world functions. People are using, and the question is, do you want them using on the sidewalk or do you want them to go inside out of public site and use there and not die? Were you reluctant to author this legislation or did you jump at the opportunity? I'm a strong supporter of this model because it saves lives and gets people into treatment and reduces syringe litter and reduces public drug use. I don't like walking down the street and seeing someone shooting up. No one should have to see that. So I think it's a good idea to give people an option to go inside out of public view uh, and, and, and increase the odds they're going to survive and get into the treatment. Um, so I've been a strong supporter of this model for, for probably a decade. Uh, and so I was uh, honored to author this legislation, which has a huge coalition behind it of physicians, uh, of public health advocates, uh, and, and people who really believe that we need to treat drug use and addiction um, as the uh, health problem that it is, not a criminal problem. Now, I, I, you know, in that list of people that you mentioned backing this kind of legislation, you didn't mention uh, victims' family members or abusers' family members. Uh, are, have you heard from families of people uh, dealing with this issue, you know, in support of this legislation? Yeah, there, there are um, people who have recovered from drug addiction who are very supportive. Uh, there are family members who are very supportive. I mean, just to be clear, there are also people in recovery and, and, and family members who don't support it. There's always a diversity of views. Um, but there, yeah, there are a lot of people who have gone through this tragedy of addiction 
and come out and recovered, or people who have lost family members uh, who are who are supportive, who understand that arresting people is not the path to ending drug addiction. So why do you think the governor vetoed this legislation? Do you think he was thinking about running for president? He was thinking two years down the road, and he knew that if if he supported something like this, his candidacy would be dead in the water. Do you think that's what was running through his mind and his aides' minds uh, when this landed on his desk? I have no idea what was running through the governor's mind, and I'm not going to speculate about his or anyone else's motivation. What I know is what he put in the veto message, which I strongly uh, disagree with. Um, you know, I, I think on the politics, there has been polling on safe consumption sites, um, and it has very strong support, not just among Democrats. It even has um, weaker, albeit um, a decent level of support, even among Republicans, because most people, as a matter of common sense, understand that it's better for someone to use drugs inside than on the sidewalks, uh, and that it's better for someone to be alive uh, than to be dead. So I, I would dispute that the politics uh, on this issue are uh, in any way toxic, um, like people say. Uh, but, and I, but again, I, I, all I, I don't know what the governor's motivation was. I only know what he said and what he wrote in his veto message, and I disagree with it. Yeah, but you, you can, I'm sure you can understand or... Uh, empathize with, you know, maybe not this candidate, uh, Governor Newsom, for t- potentially running for president, but you can understand how this could be a, a difficult issue for anyone seeking a higher office at this time in his history. You can acknowledge that. Oh, I, I uh, again, I, I, I think a lot of times, and actually the governor has a long history of taking positions that are out ahead of uh, what's perceived to be public opinion, like he did with marriage equality. Uh, he did that in 2004, and he was then blamed uh, with John Kerry losing re-election. He was shunned. Barack Obama would not be photographed with him. Uh, and, I, and I guess the governor came out ahead on that one. Uh, and so there are times when there are political pundits uh, claiming that X, Y, or Z issue is going to be toxic. And it turns out not to be because uh, in the long run, people understand that it was the right thing to do. So, again, I, I'm not going to speculate about the governor's motivation. Um, I do believe that the public understands that, in, that arresting and incarcerating uh, drug users is, does not work uh, and that we should treat drugs as a health issue. Senator Scott Weiner, representing San Francisco, really appreciate you coming on. I think, I think it is true that you know, there. This is an issue that has to be dealt with. We're seeing people uh, across this country dying due to drug overdoses, and you know, there's so much going on in this world that oftentimes I think there there are a lot of people in this country feel like we aren't focusing enough on on helping family members and people in these communities who are. Um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I think fighting this battle alone. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. People are in pain and we're not doing enough for them. State Senator Scott Weiner, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. 
That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.